Good morning. Please open up your Bible to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, and if you're in the Pew Bible, that is one page over from 894. We were just in John chapter 8, that was 894. Just one more page over 895, you're going to see John chapter 9. We're going to study the whole chapter this morning, all 41 verses. It moves pretty quick, uh, so be ready to go. Be ready to follow along and study this morning. There might not be a more universal, universally understood contrast than light and darkness. Of all cultures, of all places, of all nationalities, we all seem to understand light and darkness. When did that start? Back in Genesis 1-5, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So evening and morning were the first day. And so it's been for thousands and thousands and thousands of days. So all people of all languages know the difference between light and darkness because it's happening every day. Darkness brings eeriness, confusion, pain, Criminals and cockroaches like to hide in it. Our moods are corrupted by it. Sin, of course, is illustrated by it. But light brings a path. Light brings understanding and joy. Our patio lights are pretty because they break the darkness. And past the patio lights, we see the lights illuminating the dark sky, the stars, of course. The Christmas lights shatter darkness at wintertime. We pray when helping our kids with their homework that God will bring the light on in their minds and take away the confusion of darkness or the darkness of confusion. It doesn't matter if you are from the BC or the AD. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter if you farm or fish or anything in between. No matter your shape or color, we universally know that light comforts, brings understanding, destroys darkness, offers hope, rescues, and guides. Is there any wonder, then, that Jesus said, I am the light of the world? And is there a more clear and honorable calling than when Jesus said to his followers, you are the light of the world? In sign number five last week, it was rather interesting. The miracle happened, and then the message. The miracle was God feeds the 5,000 from five loaves and two fishes. And then he preaches the bread of life message. Sign six is actually the opposite. God preaches the light of the world message. Jesus preaches the light of the world message, and then he performs the miracle. By the way, what makes a great sign? Sometimes it's good just to state the obvious. What makes a great sign? It's got to be big. It's got to be noticeable. It's got to stick out, right? There's a reason why stop signs are big, red, and right in the line of vision, right? There's a reason why billboards are huge. Um, you've seen this billboard. You know the billboard that has nothing on it except three letters? Made you look right? I think it's out in Wilmington. I think it was in Wilmington a little while ago. You're driving through Wilmington, and you might know it's there, and you don't want to look at it. You're training your eyes. Don't look. Don't look. You looked. Oh, and you feel so patronized, right? You're admitting that the billboard company works. If you're in the billboard company, I'm sorry. Uh, but those big billboards that take up the whole scenery, yeah, they work because they're big, and you can see them. You can't miss them. That's what Jesus' miracles are. In the everyday wedding drink shortage, in the middle of everyday temple greed, in the middle of anxiety of a child being sick, in the horrible daily battle of being lame, in the everyday frustration of forgetting your lunch, Jesus does something awesome that you cannot miss. Jesus does the miraculous, like a monstrous lip-up billboard in the middle of a lonely rural road. You can't miss it. It's impossible not to see. And that's what the supernatural 
does. The miracles display the supernatural that obliterates the normal. It's a clear demonstration that God, only God, is at work. You might say, well, wait a minute. When the temple was cleansed, was that a miracle? Hey, don't forget, he said, when he was asked, by what authority do you clean the temple? Don't forget what he said. He said, destroy this temple, referring to his own body, and I'll raise it up three days later. A prediction of his coming, miraculous resurrection from the dead. By the way, are we responsible for seeing these signs? Are we? Yes. Going back to the highways, have you ever had that unfortunate conversation with the police officer in which he says, sir, did you see the sign? May it happen to you, may it happen to me. You know the awkwardness of the conversation when you say, sorry, sir, I didn't, I didn't see the sign. Does it matter? At least for me, it didn't matter. It doesn't matter. You're responsible to see the sign that's clearly put on the way. These miracles that are preserved miraculously in the book of John, we have no excuse. They're placed right here along our way, and we see them. We see the signs. And what should be our response? Well, if you're new to the series, the evangelist John, he has written the book of John with a simple desire. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life through his name. That is John 20, verse 31. Simply put, see and believe. See the miracles. See the signs and believe. There's no other response that's appropriate. What signs have we seen so far? Just a quick review. Well, we went with Jesus to Canaan, and he changed the water into wine. And we saw that Jesus, the Son of God, had ushered in a new covenant that is far better than the old. We saw him at Passover when he cleansed the temple. And that sign told us that Jesus, the Son of God, will build a new temple of the church through his death and resurrection. We went along to Galilee where we saw Jesus heal the nobleman's son. We saw the Son of God get healed by mere words. In Jerusalem, he healed a lame man by the pool of Bethesda. And the sign says, Jesus, Son of God, brings wholeness, both physically, but more importantly, spiritually. And near the Sea of Galilee last week, Jesus fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. Jesus, the Son of God, gives eternal life as he satisfies eternal hunger. And now we look at sign number six. Today, we're near the temple again, and we see another sign. So if you're in John chapter one, let's start reading. I'll read verse one, and let's see the sixth sign together. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Let's stop and just give a little background. As Russell mentioned, we're right in the time of feasting. This is the Feast of the Tabernacles. And this is a week long, it's actually eight days, an eight day long celebration in which the Israelites camped. They set up booths. They set up uh, temporary structures, tabernacles. And they camped through the week to remind them and celebrate the great rescue in which God rescued them from Egypt. And they spent 40 years, of course, in the desert. Each night there was a, a pretty neat display Four huge bowls, and they would have had them in huge, because inside each of these four bowls is 120 logs, and they lit that, they lit that thing on fire. So in the dark nights of Jerusalem, there's a beautiful fire that illuminated. And the men would take torches and light them, and they would dance in a very ceremonial fashion. It would have been beautiful. It would have been awesome to see. And it's in the midst of all this that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Everybody would have seen it. It would have been beautiful except for, of course, a man suffering from blindness. And that's what we see right here. 
verse 2. And his disciples asked, looking at the blind man, and the disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? We probably should skip this part, right? Because this is not about the sign. Actually, verse 2 is the very beginnings of the sign. Come back to it. Verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So the disciples see the blind man, and immediately they form some conclusions. It was either the blind man that sinned or it was his parents. Jesus, which one was it? It was either the or, right? Well, the disciples are obviously too narrow in their thinking. But in their defense, are there not biblical examples in which sin directly resulted in consequence? And the answer is yes. Uh, Chris Elliott preached just a couple weeks ago from John chapter 5. And in John chapter 5, verse 14, God heals the lame man. But then he approaches the lame man and he says this, Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. We don't know all the details, but it's obvious that his sin and his life resulted in being lame. We see in the Old Testament, too, is Miriam, sister to Moses, who was struck immediately by leprosy when she complained against the leadership that God had ordained. So by the thinking of the disciples, there's some allowance to this conclusion, right? Well, that's just the problem. It's, it's their thinking. It's man's thinking. The problem with man's thinking is it's limited. It's faulty. It becomes overly conclusive, and it crumbles pathetically at the mind of God and his sovereignty. By the way, the Bible actually teaches in Ezekiel 18, chapter 3, chapter 18, verse 3, that they were to stop doing this. Israelites stopped immediately concluding that something bad was a result of, a, of an immediate offense of sin. The Bible says this, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 3. Here's the proverb. The father eats the grapes, and the children's teeth are slanted. In other words, the father sins, and the children suffer the consequences. God actually uses Ezekiel to say, stop it. Stop that thinking. Why? Why stop that thinking? Because it exalts man's thinking against the sovereignty of God. And our pride needs to hear this this morning. My pride does. When do we think that we can offer our insights and conclusions as if it carries any weight against the sovereignty of God? The creation account alone teaches us that we are but dust in the Creator's hands. Furthermore, we read in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, God is the potter, and we are but the mere clay, right? And as the potter fashions the clay, does the clay have any jurisdiction over the potter's hands? None at all. At no point does the clay get to scream out to the potter, stop, don't, no, no, not there. Don't pull that away, don't add that, no. The potter has no, excuse me, the clay has no jurisdiction. The potter has complete control to fashion and perfect his beauty as he decides. Well, does that lead us to think that God's sovereignty is, is cold or, or, or heartless? So when we see all these bad things that happen, blindness and disabilities, do we just, well, God's just simply getting what he wants. Is that where we should go with our, with our thinking? No, we need to stop. We need to go back to the baseline. 
We need to go back to the very, very baseline and understand some things when we reverently approach the subject of, of God's sovereignty. Two things. First, it's only by God's grace that any of us have sight. We, we can't forget that. It's by God's grace that any of us have sight, the ability to walk, the ability to hear, the ability to take our next breath, right? Let's think this through. Sin is so deserving of our immediate disposal. Sin is so offensive to a holy God that we can't help but see God's grace by the hour, by the minute. We need to be captivated by how good God is over and over in our life and realize over and over we don't deserve any of it, right? We tend to walk through life thinking about our next upgrade. Do we not? Well, our next house, my next car, my next phone, right? Thinking of the upgrade. This, this, this will be better. It'll get better. It'll get better. The Bible tells us to walk through life just being thankful, thankful, and thankful, and thankful some more. Why? Because in our thankfulness, we never stop forgetting that we're not deserving of any wealth or health, shelter, food. We're not deserving of any of it. And when God so richly gives, we're reminded again, our gracious God is giving to us. We remember that all good things come down from the Father of lights, as James tells us. God is so good that he sends the rain on the wicked and the good. Who's the wicked? That's us. That's the good. Maybe those are redeemed by Christ. Either way, we're not deserving of it at all. It's the reoccurring theme in the story of God's sovereignty. Sinners getting what they do not deserve. So number one, we must recognize that. When we approach God's sovereignty, God is so good. Any other conclusion is not right at all. The second thought from the baseline is this. God does bring universal healing. Right? We see something bad happen. Where's God? Why didn't God intervene? Why didn't God step in and, and take care of it? That, that cancer, that, that blindness, that, that COVID. We got to remember there's something far worse than any of those things. And I'm not trying to minimize those things. But we got to remember there's something far worse. It's the thing that kills 10 out of 10 people, right? Of course, it's sin. We know that. 10 out of 10 people will die because of their sin. There's no greater plague than that. There's no greater need that humans have. And there's no wonderful display as when God intervened and saved us or gave us opportunity to be saved from our sin. We'll go to the pool of Siloam in just a minute. But near the pool of Siloam, there was once a tower called the Tower of Siloam. And in Jesus' day, this is, a, this is a current event from Jesus' day, a tower project went wrong and a tower collapsed. And the Bible says that 18 people died and when the tower collapsed at the Tower of Siloam. And it was horrible. Jesus actually brings it up to the people that are following him. Because the conclusion was kind of like the disciples. Well, those tower guys, you know how sinful they are. Oh, you know, reading the front page of the Jerusalem Times. Oh, I know that tower guy. <laughs> I know what he does with his money. <laughs> oh, I know that guy's mouth. I know how filthy he is. Yeah, they probably deserved it. That was the conclusion about the Tower of Siloam. This is what Jesus said. Jesus said, do you not think? Do you not think? that they were any worse than anyone else in Jerusalem? And he said this, but unless you repent, you all likewise perish. Jesus reminding him, yes, tower tragedies are horrible, but you realize there's something worse. It's dying without knowing the Savior. It's dying in your sins. That's far, far worse. We live in a sin-cursed world. We should expect suffering. 
But praise God, the worst of suffering, death and hell, Jesus destroyed it. But we see it all the time. Spiritually blind people shake their fists at God. How could God ignore such suffering? The question should be, how can we ignore Jesus suffering on the cross to save us from our damning sin? Hebrews 2.3 says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How can we miss the love of God that wants to save us from eternal suffering? Wasn't this supposed to be a message on signs? Yes, and this is where it gets good. The first glimpse of the sign announcing that Jesus God is right here. And we'll see it in a second. But for 38 years, this man has suffered. If he's human, he probably wants two things. Of course, he wants his blindness cured. And he also wants to know why. Why, Lord? Why? 38 years of suffering from blindness. Well, this is where we get to our outline. What the sign said to the people. All right? What did the sign say to the people? Here's the first thing. The sign is saying, number one, Jesus knows the unknowable answer. Let's get to the miracle. Verse 6. Having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So Jesus, very interesting, he uses saliva in his miracle. Has he ever done that before? Yeah, he has. He actually healed the deaf man by using his saliva. So Jesus approaches this man, very, very likely that the beggar is sitting. Wouldn't that make sense? He's blind, so his, st his stability comes from sitting. He's right there in a way where he can beg. He's very likely sitting. We know that Jesus is walking. And so when Jesus sees this blind man, there's one of two things he did. He either stood him up and put the mud on his face, but I think it's more likely that he stooped down to his level. I can't help but see the beautiful picture there of salvation, that Jesus, the Son of God, came down to the level of sinful man. Picture that now. Jesus comes down to his knee and maybe takes the guy by his shoulders and comforts it and talks to him, and then he spits. I'm not going to spit. But he reaches down with his finger and starts stirring up the mud, pastes it on his hands, and then pastes it on the man's eyes, lifts the man up, and says, you know where the pool of Siloam is? Yes, sir. Go to the pool of Siloam and wash your eyes. And the man is able to go. Did he have assistance? I don't know. But he stumbles his way, and he gets to the pool of Siloam. Well, why the saliva? Why? We, we can't help but read this and ask. Why the saliva? Is it that the Jews thought the Messiah that would come would have power in his spit? That's been said, but there's nothing in the Bible that, that says that. Um, tradition says that the Jews believed that the saliva of the oldest son had healing powers, and Jesus was the only begotten son. Mm. I can't help but not get caught up in those and get more caught up again in the potter and the clay. I can't help but see Jesus making the clay, putting it on the man, and subconsciously he would realize, hey, I am but a part of God's sovereign plan by God who loves me and has a plan through all of this. I can't help thinking, too, he's making mud on the Sabbath. He's making clay on the Sabbath. Who's against that? Obviously, the Pharisees. Is he triggering the Pharisees a little bit? We tend to think of the Pharisees and Jesus as being at such odds, and they are. Russell read the passage that talked about how they wanted him arrested. They want him killed. If you read John chapter 7 and John chapter 8, they want him killed, arrested, removed. There's obviously a great conflict there. But has Jesus stopped loving them? 
He's not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance, even the Pharisees that are vehemently against him. I can't help but think of those signs. You see them quite a bit down south. Going back to billboards for a second. You'll see a billboard. I'm just kind of making this up. But Aunt B's pancakes, five miles. Right? What's, that? What's, what's one mile later? Aunt B's pancakes, four miles. Aunt B's pancakes, three miles. You know, just a mile later. And on and on. By the time you get the exit, I get it. Aunt B's making pancakes. But that constant messaging is there so you don't miss it. I think Jesus is giving constant messaging to the Pharisees. Listen, Pharisees, there's somebody greater than the temple here. There's somebody greater than Moses here. The Lord of the Sabbath is here. Don't miss it. One more time, he's holding up this sign. Don't miss it, Pharisees. I'm right here. The one the scriptures are telling you about, the one Moses told you about, is here. What about the pool of Siloam? John says clearly, it means sent. Why does John add that? Is it a little bit of wordplay, perhaps? Jesus was sent to be the light of the world, and he's sending the blind man. Uh, we do know from history that Hezekiah had the tunnels built into Jerusalem from the, from the, uh, the Gihon Springs, and the water was sent into Jerusalem, so maybe that's just part of it. But there's something interesting going on as well in the festival of uh, tabernacles. There was a water drawing ceremony. I don't know which night, but one of those nights, I think maybe it was a day, one of those days, the priest would go to the pool of Siloam with a golden vessel and take water from the pool of Siloam and then go to the altar. And at the same time, they would pour a bowl of wine with a bowl of water from the pool of Siloam. And the water and wine would come and wash and purify the altar. You can't help but see the picture of Christ on the cross, right? When Christ finished, his work at Calvary, and his side was pierced. The Bible says clearly, water and blood flowed from his side. Is there a picture here? I believe that there is. No altar would ever compare to it. Of course, what Jesus did at Calvary, and soon no altar would ever be needed. But sending the man to the pool was obviously a test of faith. Would the blind man obey? Would he submit to the potter? Faith without obedience, of course, is dead. We know that. And this is clearly pictured here. A cleansing faith would propel the man's legs to that pool. Jesus is beginning to teach this man what a life of faith will look like. But notice, Jesus is God. Only he can do the impossible. And right now, he has given sight to the man born blind, fulfilling prophecy, prophecy found in Isaiah 35, that the Messiah would come and give sight to the blind. But we mentioned this, the blind man wants to know why. He's human. We all would. We've all often asked the same things. Why, Lord? Why? Maybe sweetly, maybe humbly, but Lord, why? As we said earlier, who can add commentary to God's sovereignty? No one. But his son can. Who can give the answer to the answer why? The son of God can. And he did. Did you catch it in verse 3? That the works of God might be displayed in him. I love this. Jesus came to give the answer to the unknowable question, or to give the unknowable answer. Over in the book of Job, God asked Job a series of, a series of questions. A commentator said there's about 66 questions. And in those 66 questions, Job is constantly put on the spot. Job, where were you? Job, can you explain this? 
Job, can you approach the Almighty and explain this for him? And he asked one question. This is Job 38, verse 24. What is the way to the place the light is distributed? And you know Job couldn't answer. But the light of the world knows the answer. Jesus can speak to the sovereignty of God. And this sign is telling us Jesus is God. He knows the unknowable answer. Does that bring comfort to us today? Does it bring comfort to Bethel Baptist today? It absolutely should. Yes. Jesus is clearly telling us here that there is a reason. It might be hard. It might be difficult. And we may never know it on this side of eternity. But praise God, we know there's a reason inside the loving Savior's hands. This man got to know the reason. We may never. But can we trust God's purpose even though we don't know the reason? Is the ultimate plan of God's sovereignty so wonderful to us that we can accept the suffering? This is an easy subject. John Piper says this. The reason, and it's not on the screen, and I apologize, that's totally on me. It's a deep quote, so I wish it was there so you could see it, but I'll, I'll try to read slowly. The reason causes are not the ultimate explanation for things is that God is not ultimately a responder, but ultimately a planner. In other words, when God ordains that something happens, God is not at the bottom responding to human causes. He is at bottom planning a purpose. We're used to going through life as the responders to what we see happening. God's not there. He knows clearly and he knows the plan. He knows the end from the beginning. Can we trust him? In the moment of suffering, in the moment of hurt, can we trust him? God, you know what you're doing. God, you have a plan. And I know that all things work together for good to those that love him, who are called according to his purpose. Can we trust? Do you remember Luke chapter 21? I love this story. There's a widow who walks into the back of the temple. I picture her walking slowly. She's poor. She hasn't had an easy life. She's just buried her husband. She has no reason to be happy. She's buried her husband. She's poor. She doesn't have a new outfit. She doesn't have a pantry overflowing with food. But oh, she wants to give all that she does have to God. To the God that, get this, did not heal or restore her husband's health. She wanted to give everything she had to a God who did not leave her with a rich inheritance. God's plan to this lady, to this saint, brought more joy than better circumstances. That's deep. That's heavy, I know. It's not easy. But do you see the response to Jesus? From Jesus, he lauds her. I love that picture. Jesus says, disciples, did you see that? What, 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 Jesus? Back there, the treasury. Did you see it? And you can see the disciples turning and say, oh, oh, oh. Ooh, that big money bag right there. Yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely Simon right there. Simon the Benjamite. Yep. Well, he's done well in real estate this year. No, no, no. Not him. Her. And Jesus explains, they gave up the abundance. She gave all she had. She has such trust. She has such love in God's sovereignty. She's still willing and ready to worship and take delight in Jesus, even in her sufferings. One thing to mention also before we leave this subject, number three, Jesus is the Son of God. He's worthy of worship. 
Skip down to chapter 9, verse 35. Chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. We'll get to that part of the story in a second. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, He is the blind man who used to be blind. And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and he is, it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus, the Son of God, he's worthy of worship. Remember the time in God's word where people approached, maybe an angel, one time apostles, and they wanted to worship them? Over in Acts, Paul and Barnabas, right? They did a miracle, and they're so thrilled. These people, uh, I think it's uh, Laconia. They say, these men, they're they're like the gods, and they're ready to sacrifice uh, to them. Paul and Barnabas immediately ripped their clothes. No, 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 we're but mere men. This should have been exactly the same response of Jesus. Unless he's God in the flesh. Unless he was Emmanuel. And he is God with us. Perfectly worthy of worship. If you're looking for verses, you're looking for truths that speak specifically to the deity of Christ, look no further. Jesus received worship because he's absolutely, absolutely perfect and worthy of such. So what did the sign say to the people? The sign said Jesus is God. He knows the unknowable answer. He knows the reason for our suffering. Jesus is God. He does the impossible. He healed the blind man from his birth. And thirdly, Jesus is God. He is worthy of worship. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Let's move to the final part. What did the people say about the sign? That's really the rest of the chapter. There's about four responses, and they're all kind of interesting. They all teach us a little something first about man and their condition, and then also teaches us a little something about being our own light to the world. Let's talk about the neighbors for a minute. The neighbors, what do they say about the sign? Well, they're really into the sign. I mean, the actual sign. They're really into the sign. How are your eyes open, they ask. Unfortunately, they'll be so perplexed that they'll go away from the sign. They'll go away from the light. Let's pick up in verse 8. Verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. And so they said to him, Then how are your eyes open? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. Verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. So they see the sign, and they're really into the sign. They're really perplexed. But a sign is just a sign. The sign's only there to point to something bigger and something greater. It'd be really silly if we were all standing around the Bethel Baptist church sign right now, looking for the sanctuary. That's just a sign. The building behind it is what it's representing, right? They saw the sign. They really got into the sign. This is not the first time this happened in Israelite history. Do you remember the bronze serpent? In the Old Testament, that was to be a sign. And if you remember the story, the children of Israel were bit by fiery serpents. But Moses resurrected or, 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 or brought up a, uh, a, a bronze statue of a snake. And if they looked by faith on the snake, they'd be healed. And it was a sign. It was a sign of the coming Messiah. We know this from John chapter 3. Jesus said to Nicodemus, as Moses raised up the bronze serpent, 
so the Son of Man will be raised up and draw all men unto him. It was a sign. What happened to that sign? Did it just go into the museum and become a, a thing that the Israelites looked at and, and, and marveled at and remembered what their forefathers had gone through? They actually began to use the sign as part of their worship. And actually, there's biblical evidence that suggests that they were using it to a point of worshiping it. You see it over in 2 Kings chapter 18, that they began to burn incense to the bronze serpent. What did good king Hezekiah do? He destroyed it. So they call him a good king. He saw it and recognized, wait a minute, you're taking your focus off of Jehovah, and you're adding this, 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 this icon to it. We're going to get rid of it. And you can almost hear them screaming, no, no, don't touch the bronze serpent of Moses. No, get your eyes off the sign and see Jesus. See Jehovah. And for us today, again, where we see the sign, we're to fall in worship as the blind man and see this is the Messiah who has come, who has promised to us. Can we make too much of the things that point to Jesus? Maybe, 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 Maybe a good song, a song, a sermon, a book. We could make so much of, the, of those things. They're not necessarily bad. But if those things are really doing what they should be, they should fade away and illuminate Jesus to the point where all we see is Jesus. Can we do the same thing in our lives where we go towards the darkness to find some sort of satisfaction, uh, uh, satisfaction some sort of comfort? We cozy up to the darkness, thinking our heart's satisfaction will be found there. And we soon come away disappointed. We're supposed to go to the light. We're supposed to go to Jesus, the light of the world. He alone is our treasure. Christ is our great pearl. He is who we run to, even at the expense of the sign. I can remember this, and I don't know if this will really relate to what I'm, I'm trying to get across. But I remember Christmas in my home, and there's really two rules uh, on Christmas morning. No present opening until grandma and grandpa were there and breakfast had been eaten. And both of those things were long and drawn out, right? Grandma and grandpa lived an hour away. Breakfast was a big thing. And I remember as a six, seven, eight-year-old just being, come on, eat faster, come on. And I remember when we finally were done, grandma and grandpa were here, we've eaten our breakfast, we're walking towards the tree, we're going to open presents, and then my dad notices... And he mentions to Grandpa, hey, I just put up this uh, door trim. Door trim? It's Christmas morning. And I'm not kidding. For the next five to ten minutes, they studied the door trim. I'm sure my dad did a good job on the door trim. But come on, Christmas morning? Who's looking at door trim? Christ is our treasure. The world offers us nothing. There's no value there. I love that song we sang last week. You can have all this world. Give me Jesus. By way of encouragement, too, I want to notice this. Jesus came as the very light of the world. Was he ignored? Yes. Yeah, he was. He was ignored. Here's the Son of God shining the brightest of lights, and he's ignored. Will our own testimony be ignored? We mentioned at the beginning of the message that our calling from Matthew chapter 5 is to be the light of the world. And how frustrating it is when people see the light and they want to attribute it to something else. They, 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 they see our, our, our patience in the workplace. Oh, you're, yeah, you're just, you're religious. 
No, no, I'm not religious. I love Jesus. Oh, I saw how you handled that circumstance. Yes, your religion. I'm telling you, that's good stuff. My grandma was religious. See you at lunch. Ah, no, it's not my religion. It's not some systematic thing I'm, I'm going through for brownie points. No, I love Jesus. It's him. It's him alone. People will miss the light. They'll ignore the light. If they ignore Jesus' light, they're going to ignore ours. There's a second response. Now by the Pharisees. Look at verse 14. Verse 14. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I wash and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? The blind man said, he's a prophet. Skip verse 18. We're going to come back to that. Look down at verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man, the blind man, the formerly blind man, and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. In the conversation we've read, in the conversation we're going to finish here in just a second, there's a, there's a ton we could pull out. It's probably a sermon in and of itself. But there's just two things I want us to see. Number one, I want us to see the elitism of the Pharisees. The elitism. They don't see the light because they're too busy looking down on the light. They're way too good for that. They're of Moses' pedigree. We'll see that here in just a second. But I also want you to see the antidote for the elitism. And I firmly believe it's our testimony. The testimony, the imprint of Jesus Christ on us, the light that he shines through us, they can't explain that away. As much as they want to hide it, want to run from it, explain it away, they can't get rid of it. It is there. It is constantly a stumbling block to them. And notice right here, what does he say to the Pharisees? Though I was blind, now I see. Jesus touched me. He healed me. Let's keep going. Verse 26. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've I told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple. We are the disciples of Moses. Elitism. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as to this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why? This is amazing. This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he, he opened my eyes. Again, verse 25, we saw his testimonies, the antidote against the elitism. What are we called to do with our light? Have a ton of charisma? Just have a ton of intellect? No. We're called in 1 Peter to be ready to answer the question about the hope that resides within us. It's our testimony. Simply put, we simply share the world what Jesus has done to us. Just like the blind man. He touched my eyes and now I see. And the Pharisees can't get over it. When we run into the elitism of our day, and we do, we'll talk about it in a second, we just keep sharing Christ. We just keep showing Christ. They can't get over that. They can't pass that. The Pharisees in the following verses will chide him, belittle him, accuse him, before they excommunicate him out of the temple. Full rejection. However, it is a man's testimony that becomes the objective reality that the Pharisees cannot explain away or get around. 
The Pharisees want the blinding light of his testimony to go away. Remember Moses came off Mount Sinai? Moses, that glory of God on your face. Ah, wear a veil. Remember that? Wear a veil. And that's what the Pharisees want. Ah, we don't, we don't want to see this. We're told not to hide our light, right? To put the veil over. Let the light so shine. Let them see Jesus. Let them see what they've done to us. Are we going to run into elitism? Let's keep reading. The man answered, well, we just did. Let's go to verse 31. We know that God does not listen to sinners. This is the formerly blind man speaking. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man was not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in your sin and you would teach us. And they cast him out. I love how the blind man says, this is a marvelous thing. In the ESV, it says amazing. In another translation, it says marvelous. This is marvelous. You and all of your pedigree, you and all your education cannot explain where this man has come from. I've only been seeing now for maybe an hour, and I can tell you where it came from. Will we run into elitism in 2021? You've heard it said, right? You've heard this. I'm not going to lower myself to believe those old fables. <laughs> Talking snakes. Please, I have science. Give 10% of my earnings? <laughs> uh, you don't get the American dream that way. Those old-fashioned family values. What, one man, one woman, submitting to each other, loving each other, serving each other. A marriage that, 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 that uh, displays the, the, the glory of God. Oh, please, wake up, man. Wake up. We've evolved past that 1950s stuff. You see it. If you have any connection with media today, you see the elitism just streaming out. And if you have conversations with people that don't know the Lord, you're going to see it come out. It's this elitism, this looking down upon us. But what shines squarely into their eyes that they can't take away? Again, it is our testimony that old things have passed away and all things become new. The imprint of Jesus in our life cannot be explained away. It cannot be proven false. Sealed until the day of redemption, we are blood-washed son and daughter of the king, and our testimony repeals the ugliest of elitism. They have no answer for our love for enemies. They have no answer for our loyalty to our spouse, our care for the hurting, our refusal to be controlled by money. They have no answer for us living for the life to come. And by the way, science, can you please explain to me morality, objectivity, time, space, and the continuity of the universe? There's no answer. Our testimony shines so bright. So when I shine my light, will I melt elitism? They can reject our light. They can excommunicate us from the temples. They can try to shut us up, but they can't shut our light off. My, my boys came back from camp, and they talked about a missionary that was talked about during devotion time, a missionary who gave his life on the mission field for the cause of Christ. That man's not alive anymore, but his light is still shining, and it shined, it was shown into the lives of my boys this week. Does, does the light of Stephen still shine today in the book of Acts? Yes. How about Ignatius? on the pages of church history. How about Jim Elliot? Yes, the light still shines. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter how they try to shut us up. Our light will still shine should we allow it and show Christ to the world. There's a third response. 
Let's go back to verse 18. Verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight. Getting back into the story, the Jews do not believe the man that became whole in his eyes was blind. So verse 18, in the middle, until they called his parents of the man who had received the sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he'll speak for himself. And notice this, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So what's the parents' response? Oh, he's of age, ask him. And they close their eyes to the lights. This is probably the most confusing and maybe the most hurtful. The parents have seen this whole man's life play out, right? They were there, obviously, when the, when the doctor said, or, the, or the midwife said, it's a boy. And they, they were there in the, in, the, in the coming hours, in the coming days and weeks, and they realized there's something wrong with our son. They saw him stumble through life. They saw his days of being a lonely child. They saw him fight in anger and sadness. They shed tears. They cried out to God. They saw his early 20s turn into his late 30s, and he's a pitiful beggar on the side of the road. And then the light of the world comes, and the glory of God shines through their son. The son of God has healed their son. As horrible as that day was when they first learned their son was blind, should have been explosively rejoicing. Our son can see. God has sent the light of the world to us. But it's almost like they choose to go blind. They close their eyes. Why? Because of fear? Wouldn't the joy of the son's healings wipe away their fear? Wouldn't the curiosity of this light of the world, this Jesus, wouldn't that propel them to run to Christ? It is painful to think, thinking about ourselves and our own testimony, it's painful to think that even those who are closest to, those who have seen the worst in us and have seen Christ working on us and they see the hope that lies within us, it's almost like they close their eyes. But there's a fourth response. The fourth response, and that's of the blind man. And we've seen his response a little bit already. In an interesting study, it'd be rather interesting to think about the four soils that Jesus preached about. Remember the four soils, right? Uh, one was too hard, and, and one was rocky, not enough depth. And the third one was the thorns that, that choked out the seed when the, when the seed was spread uh, in that area, right? It'd be kind of fun to try to say, okay, the, the Pharisee's response, the parents' response, the neighbor's response, what kind of soil is that? And some of it's kind of awkward, so it's not worth getting into right now. But the fourth soil absolutely, perfectly pictures the heart of this man. This is what Jesus said about the fourth soil. Matthew 13, verse 8. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Back to verse 35, and I know we've already read it, but I want to see it again. Jesus heard that they'd cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Notice the simplicity. Just worships. Not, 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 not. Jesus, let's talk about the mud. Why did you, why did you do the mud? Not, not, not. Jesus, can you, can you measure up to, to Moses? 
How are my, how my parents going to feel? Not my, my parents going to accept you? No. He just receives and he worships. Why is it so important to share our testimony? For the ears of the people hearing, yes, but then for our own ears to hear our own testimony back to ourselves, right? Like Pastor Chris talks about, preaching back to ourselves and preaching to that stubborn heart of ours and reminding ourselves again that, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, what is this all about? Oh, yeah, a loving God loved me so much. He sent his son to die on the cross for me. And he saved and cleansed me and, re- and, and released me in my sin debt. And I'm saved and now I'm a child of his forever. And in simplicity, we just worship. We cry out like the songs we're singing this morning. Oh, he's so beautiful and so worthy of worship. The miracle in John chapter 9 is a physical healing. But it's meant, of course, to teach the spiritual. Without Christ saving us, we're blind, hopeless, purposeless, aimless. We're corrupted by our own selfishness. We're sinful to the cure, to the core. I think this passage in Isaiah is right here. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 9 and 10. Listen to this passage. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We gripe, oh, excuse me, we grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in twilight. Among those in full vigor, we're like dead men. Well, what, what, what is this, this pitiful display? What is it describing? It's describing a man in his sin. In his sin, spiritually blind, spiritually dead, having no hope. The hope is the Messiah. And when the Messiah came, he opened the eyes of the blind, not just the physical, but to show that the one that healed the physical blindness can hear our spiritual blindness as well. Look at verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. He's talking spiritually. Verse 40. Notice this. The Pharisees are blind, but they have enough cognitive ability to catch on to something. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Are you, are you talking about us? Yes, he's talking about you. Again, out of love, he's calling out to you. The Pharisees, they recognize it right away. Yeah, he's, 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 he's talking about, about us. Verse 41, last verse. Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt or, or sin. But now that you say, we see, your guilt and sin remains. Jesus is telling them, listen, if you would just be as blind as this man is physically, or excuse me, if you would admit you're as blind as this man was physically, then that would be the first step to your healing. That would be the first step to your, to your sight, your eyes being opened. But no, you refuse to admit you need a Savior. You refuse to admit you're blind. You refuse to admit that you have a sin debt that needs to be taken care of by a loving Savior. What's the message today? Come to the light. Come to Jesus. Just as it's been the last several weeks. I don't know where you might be today. Maybe you look at life and and you say things like this. Things have just got to change. Go to Jesus. Jesus can turn the water into wine. Maybe you look at life, you say, man, I tell you what, uh, this world system has left me so powerless, excuse me, so passionless. Maybe it's porn, maybe it's substance abuse, maybe it's 
the rat race of chasing money. Maybe you're just passionless today. Go to Jesus. The one that cleansed the temple because the zeal ate him up, the Bible says. He can passionately clean you and turn your passionlessness to passion for righteousness. You may say, I just want to have a faith that's real. Uh, uh, the spotty stuff, back and forth, believing this, believing that. I just want a hope that is deep and never moving and I can anchor my life on it. Well, go learn from the men that saw the son healed and saw his lameness taken away. Both of those men found that their faith and hope could find permanence in Jesus. Maybe you say today, I wish my life was bigger than just me. That rat race we just mentioned, it's just every day the same. I want something bigger than me. We'll go to the one that can take five loaves and two fishes and can feed the multitude. Jesus can take little old me, little old you, and do something awesome and do something wonderful. Go to Jesus. I just want understanding for the world today, for, about the world today. It's confusing. It's, it's, it's this. It's a mess here. It's that and this. And voices talking over each other. I just want understanding of the world. Well, go to the one that can open your blind eyes and can help you see. You can call upon the name of the Lord today. Brokenhearted over your sin, you can pray for forgiveness today. You can find Jesus to be the perfect Savior. Don't bow up like the Pharisees. They couldn't admit they needed a sinner. I'm good enough. We're Moses' sons. Look at our pedigree. Look at what we know. Don't bow up. Humble yourself. Admit what God already knows. You're blind and you need his healing. If you know Christ today, the call is this. It's to be the light of the world, right? John chapter 5, verse 14. He's told us, let your light shine. But notice this, when Jesus said that, he wasn't telling us, hey, hey, go, go, go figure out how to turn the light on. No, he said, you are the light. You're already the light. We, we don't have to, to muster up our own light, my own strategies, and again, my own charisma. We, we, we don't have to try to turn on a flame or, or come up with a wattage for this light. No, the light is Christ in us. Greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. The light shines from the inside out as Christ radiating through us. The command is what? Don't hide it. Don't hide that light. Your light's shining. The pressure is not to try to work up something. Again, we try to do this, 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 this religious fervor. I, I got to work up something. No. It's to rest in Christ and be that new creature in Christ that he has already made us and let Christ shine through us. Let's pray for boldness. God, make me bold. Let me boldly give that answer for the hope that resides in us. Let's take a minute and let's pray. Let's ask God for that boldness this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the wonderful miracles. Lord, it reminds us of this great and awesome Savior we serve. Forgive us for the many times that we get so into peripheral. We take our focus off of you. You are our delight. You are our treasure. You have everything we desire. Lord, I pray that light would shine this week. Maybe there's church members in here. Maybe there's hearers. Maybe there's preachers in this room right now that are hiding behind inconvenience. They're hiding behind discomfort. They're hiding behind, oh, what's it going to cost me? Lord, you told us not to hide the light, but to allow your light to shine. So help us to do that this week. Father, thank you for the time of worship as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.